Not gonna lie, not even going to try to conceal it. I was jacked when today's guest agreed to an interview. David Rabin is undeniably the dean of the defense bar in Tennessee. His career is both long and illustrious, and there's really not much more to say. Give it a listen. You will learn something. I'm sitting down today with um, David Rabin. Mr. Rabin is... uh, the dean, in my estimation, of the Defense Bar in Tennessee, and I am very grateful for Mr. Rabin's time. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Rabin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, um, so I'm not going to I'm not going to waste any of your time. Uh, when I get a chance to talk to somebody like you, I'm just going to pick your brain and um, and you and and you let me know what I need to know about the things that we do. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you: uh, You have been practicing since 1973, correct? Yes, sir. And I wanted to know what your take on what you've, how you've seen the practice of law change uh, in the time that you've been practicing. Sure. Well, I graduated from the University of Tennessee uh, in December of 73, 1974. I uh, worked for the state attorney general's office in in Nashville, and as you know, we do appellate work and also represented boards and agencies. And one of the agencies that I represented a little known organization called the Parole Board and walked right into the Blanton scandal at the time, which is a very interesting. <laughs> um, and you knew one of my, of course, you knew one of my original mentors, uh, General Leach. Right. And then I left the DA's, I left the AG's office and went with the district attorney's office here in Nashville for seven and a half years. So I was prosecuted for 10 years, and then I took a year off and wrote my book on criminal defense law, and then I started private practice. Um, things that I, The most immediate things that I notice about the change of the practice of law it's over in the Metro Courthouse in the six, in the old historic Metro Courthouse. That's where we tried all the criminal cases on the sixth floor of the courthouse. And when I started, there were two men's bathrooms on the sixth floor. And it harkened back to the days when there were two men's bathrooms everywhere for different races. And although they weren't marked, uh, as, uh, by race. They had been for years. Uh, there were no women on the jury. Um, all the all the all the judges were men. All the judges were white. Almost all of the lawyers uh, were white. Uh, and so the racial and gender composition of criminal defense bar and the judiciary was almost exclusively male and almost exclusively white. And so I wanted to, you asked me this question of what is, what are the the changes in the practice? I think that demographics is, is the most obvious thing to me that's changed. And I've lived through this change uh, for a period of 40 years and seeing the dynamic change. And then, of course, I think the healthiest thing that's happened to the practice of criminal law and criminal law in general is that um, 
we become much more diverse. Uh, we have women on the bench, we have different different genders, races, etc. Uh, on the bench, and as we become more diverse, that it has to have a positive impact uh, on the practice of law and, and justice, of course. But that's the most obvious thing. If you've been around as long as I have, you've seen that and experienced that. Um, the other thing is, uh, when I started, there were no rules of criminal procedure. We had statutes and we had practices and the like, and I, I served on the Criminal Rules Commission that came up with the rules. Uh, if you can imagine a day when there were no rules of criminal procedure. Uh, I can't. Uh, there were no rules of there were the, the rules of evidence. It just commenced. There was no rules of appellate procedure, and so things were uh, going on by custom uh, practice, uh, horn books, and such as this. And um, you know, to say we were running in a common law world is an understatement back then. Uh, and so the the, the it's become we've had rules, we've had more procedures put in place, and that's a healthy thing. Uh, back then, uh, you know, there was no settlement documents. Everything was set for trial immediately. Uh, discovery that didn't exist to speak of. It was trial by ambush on both sides. And now we have the discovery rules. So those are that's a, a long answer to a short question, but those are the things that are the structural changes that I've noticed the most uh, over 40 years. Was your decision to leave the prosecution side and become a defense lawyer, um, was that a, a something that you deliberated over? Was it just sort of an evolution? It sounded like you went and you became a, you started out on the prosecution side and then you took that year off and I understood you wrote your book. When you returned to practice, you became a defense lawyer. Tell me about that. Uh, I had when I was in law school, uh, I was a baby boomer, and jobs were very difficult to find. And uh, I, I tried to get a job in the private sector, and I was offered a position in the state attorney general's office. Criminal appeals were just uh, becoming and then a huge issue, and I'd never really even considered the prosecution side. Quite frankly, I never really thought about it much. Uh, and then I was offered that opportunity, and it was a wonderful opportunity for me. I got made connections there that I had have maintained through uh, 40 years. Fabulous opportunity for me. Uh, and then Tom Schreiber, I handled a really big criminal case on appeal uh, for out of Nashville. It was a string bean murder case. And uh, I handled that on appeal for the state and got to know Tom Schreiber who prosecuted the case, and then he offered me a job in the DA's office. Uh, and I took advantage of that because I wanted to do trial work, too, and work with General Shriver. A lot of great, a lot of lawyers in Nashville work for Shriver. And so I did that for 10 years, and I really, really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I just felt like uh, moving away from the prosecutor's office into a different area would be a natural evolution for me. Uh, the, I mean, obviously there's a financial side to it also, but I also was in the middle of writing my books on criminal procedure and really wanted to take a sabbatical as it were for a whole year and just write my books, which I did. Uh, and then I was finishing that up 
I got a call from John Holland Sr. and uh, a lady Trogger had, uh, who judge now Judge Trogger had left his office, and uh, he had a position. Asked me to to join his firm, Ed Yarborough, and some other great lawyers over there. So that's just when John Hollins calls you and offers you a position like that, you don't say no. <laughs> just like when Tom Schwaber called, it's like when Tom Schwaber called me and said, "Come down here and try some lawsuits, Raven," which is the exact words he talked to me. I don't say no either. And so, when the Attorney General office called me, I was getting out of law school. Said, "Come and do appellate work." I didn't, I didn't want to turn that down. So I've been very blessed and fortunate that I've had three great positions in my life, and they've all been people that asked me. And as I said, you you don't turn those things down. Uh, and it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, Jim Neal always said a law degree is a ticket to a great career. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've, I've been on a wonderful train ever since. So it was uh, a lot of people say, oh, you switched. You've gone from one side to the other. I know I, I don't see that quite that way. <clears throat> I see prosecuting criminal cases. Defending criminal cases, it's criminal law. Use the same rules, the same books, uh, the same uh, tactics, etc. One you're on one side versus the other, but it's not that different. Um, I also had, back years ago, uh, I had the fortune of sitting as a criminal court judge many, several times. Back those years ago when I was uh, writing my book, um, when the law was that they, you could have another judge sit by interchange, but there was the rule was that judges could ask other lawyers to sit for them in whole court. Judge Kurtz asked me to hold jury trials. Judge Wyatt did it, so I've got to try several jury trials as a judge. And of course, they've discontinued that years ago. But that was just amazing experience for me uh, to be able to sit as a judge. Did it ever make you I want to become a judge? It was wonderful. They were they were all very kind of cases, and uh, you know the judges were either on vacation or had illnesses in the family or something like that. So I did that, uh, but I don't see. And, and again, being a judge, of course, you're using the same rules whether you're the judge, the prosecutor, etc. Uh, so I've I've told people I've sat in every chair in the courtroom except the defendant's chair. I never want to sit in that chair. <laughs> no doubt. So I do, I do, I do enjoy, I do enjoy it. But it's it's uh, it's different perspectives. Uh, I think, uh, as my good friend uh, Ed Yarbrough said, who was a former prosecutor also, and Hal Harden, it makes you a better lawyer if you have seen multiple sides of things. If you've been in different roles, um, if you've been a judge, you sat as a judge. You know the cardinal rule of being a, talking to a judge is keep it short. And get right to the point, because judges are smart people. They're lawyers, too. And you don't have to waste a lot of time with them. And a lot of lawyers forget that. But uh, that was what prompted me to go from one position to the other historically. Uh, I was asked, and you don't turn those things down. So I was, in preparing for this, I was looking at some of the things you've written. And I came across your 50 tips for lawyers. And one of, they, were, they were all worth reading. But one that I wanted to ask you to talk about a little bit was number 45, which is keep your word to your client and to other lawyers. The bar has a long memory. Yes. Um, that was, uh, an adage that, uh, 
John Hollins told me, and he said, that's not original with me, Mr. Raven, David. He said, I got that from Jack Norman Sr., uh, that, that concept. And of course, Jack was, Jack Norman was a premier criminal defense attorney in Nashville. Uh, and he had a great philosophy too. That you keep your word always. Uh, and the bar does have a long memory. Uh, you do something good, the law, the bar remembers it. But if you do something bad, it stays with you forever. Uh, and some people take shortcuts. They think they can get through something. Uh, quickly, I take a shortcut they shouldn't take. Uh, that affects their practice and their reputation. And even though the bar is huge in Nashville, it's not that big. And we all know who the lawyers are that don't follow that rule. And it sticks with them forever. So speaking of things that um, that you might tell any lawyer, but in particular younger <laughs> lawyers, one thing I wanted to know was, how would you recommend that a lawyer go about effectively cross-examining a uh, a prosecution's witness, in particular, say, a police officer? Sure. Now, under the modern rules, you, uh, you know that the police officer is going to be a potential witness. Uh, the new lawyer listens to the direct testimony. I've seen this hundreds of times and they, they get their legal pads out and they write a line right down the middle of the page. And they write on the left-hand side what the direct is going to be and they sort of develop cross-examination questions as they move along. You do that, you'll never be successful in cross-examining anybody. The answer to the question is, is you prepare your cross-examination before you ever walk into the courtroom. You have a series of questions already in place, ready to go, to prove a particular point. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the, the, the direct testimony might suggest questions of cross-examination. The cardinal rule of cross-examination is to prepare in advance of what it is you want to say. And you begin by saying, what is it that I want to prove through this witness? You never want to say, how can I impeach the witness or detract from his or her testimony? Jurors pay some attention to cross-examination where it disparages a witness or impeaches a witness in some fashion. But what the jurors really want to know is, well, what does this witness add to the question, add to the mix, add to the factual questions that I have to decide as a juror? And so... If the if the police officer can help you by saying that the the car was going 80 miles an hour or whatever, if that's particularly relevant to your case, you want to hammer that point out first um, and make the witness you quote unquote your own in the sense of bringing out those facts that are helpful to your side by cross examining, and you develop that first outside the courtroom. And have those lists of questions. Um, certainly, if there's something that the officer uh, hurts you on, for example, let's say 80 miles an hour was what he claims your client was doing, and it's inconsistent with your defense, um, you, you, you ask questions, you know that's going to be a key point, but you build on that. Uh, how, how did you gauge that? How close were you? 
uh, to the car? Um, were you looking at it from the front or the side or the back? Those questions you cannot develop on the, off the seat of your pants sitting there in the courtroom by drawing a yellow line down the middle of the page. Um, that's what baby lawyers do. You prepare those questions in advance. You know what the key points are going to be. And then finally, you keep it short. You get in there, you ask the key questions, and you sit down. Because otherwise, you, you lose your you lose. So preparation for cross-examination is done before you ever walk in the courtroom. One of the other uh uh, recommendations that you made was that without doubt, the most important component of any case is the client interview. And you recommend that you have the client write out their life story before they come to see you. And then you can, it sounds like you sort of tease out from that um, additional facts during the initial interview. Um, how did you decide that that, 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 that getting the client to write a letter to you before they come in is um is a good is a good um, I don't want to say trick but it's a it's insightful to to have come up with that. Well, all of my fifty points of of trying being a good lawyer, none of them were developed by me. They are all either other lawyers or mostly this particular instance was my wife. This is a psychologist. I had a case where a a, a young man was a bus driver, and he. Uh, <clears throat> was driving a bus, he had an epileptic seizure, or, excuse me, a diabetic seizure, and ran over and killed two boys in a Volkswagen. And um, he was, I talked to him, he had a great difficulty in communicating with me. We really tried to talk about his life, we tried to talk about the experiences, and I just really couldn't get much out of him. And so I said, my wife said, well, why don't you just have him write you the story of his life? I said, okay. So I tell him to do that. And about a week later, he comes into my office and he has this ruled notebook paper like you have in grammar school. Notebook paper, white notebook paper that he got out of some old book. And he starts the starts his letter. Dear Mr. Rabin, this thing with these two boys was the second scariest thing that ever happened to me in my life. Well, I can assure you I continued reading because after this horrible, horrible event, what could have been worse than this? Well, he told me. He said, when I was in Vietnam, I was a medic, and the helicopter was shot down, and it was on fire. And I grabbed the lieutenant who was in the seat, and I dragged him across the rice paddies, and I got out a machine gun, and I was shooting at the enemy. And I'm sitting there reading this, and then it said, and yeah, they gave me a medal for all this. Well, you know, I had asked him if he'd been in what his army military history was. He said he was in the Army. But he never told me he was a war hero, and I never would have known that. Well, that became the center point of our case, that he did this. He didn't do it intentionally. This man is a war hero. The primary witness against him was a man who was on the bus who jumped out. He was a medic in Vietnam. And I said, when I questioned him, I said, you know, it's funny you should mention that. Not funny, but it's interesting. My client was a medic in Vietnam. Well, all of a sudden I got a connection. All of that information I got from a letter 
from a person who I could barely speak to, who was so upset, crying about his event, I couldn't communicate with him. But he wrote me this powerful letter and every piece of information in that I used. Well, I learned from that. And so every case that I've had since, I always ask the clients, write me a letter. Tell me the story of your life. What are your life experiences? And if yet to have a case where some nugget of information was not given to me in these letters that I could subsequently use to uh, represent the person. And so that is a tool. And you ask yourself, it's wonderful. You get information. People can compose it. You can read faster than they can talk. It's more efficient. And it's a wonderful way to get insight in your client. What do you, in a in an illustrious career with with countless high profile cases and um, and I'm sure endless amounts of of um, things to be proud of, is there one case or client that stands out to you as uh, the thing that you're the most proud of as an attorney? I am. proud of everything that I do. Uh, I've had one criminal case that I may mention later, but the thing that I, I guess I'm proudest of is I was years ago, I was asked to be local counsel for a class action lawsuit that was brought against the state of Tennessee involving foster kids. The foster kids in, Nash, in, ten, in Tennessee were horribly mistreated, horribly treated very little rights. And a New York law firm, public interest firm, said we're going to sue the state and reform the, reform the um, uh, foster care system. And they asked me to be local counsel for them uh, in a federal civil rights. I do a lot of civil rights work. But my connections with the state of Tennessee that I garnered when I was in the state attorney general's office and legislate, doing work with legislature helped me to be able to talk to people and know people to help them. And so we did this massive litigation and went on for over 10 years. And we were successful in reforming the, the uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't just me, of course, it was many, many, many lawyers that worked on that. But I'm so proud of our work uh, to help these foster kids because there is nobody who is more powerless and helpless than a little kid who's, who has no family, has no income, and nobody looking out for them. And they're the most powerless people, and we empowered them. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful that I got to work on that. And I'm so proud that I did that work to help so many people. And the effects of that are still carrying on. So, yeah. I'm really proud of that piece of work that uh, I did. You mentioned that there was a you, uh, one criminal case that you you said you might talk about. Was that the Holton case? No. Okay. Well, no, that the whole that I mean, I remember that, of course. When I mean, you talk about the, the electric death penalty case or whatever that was, where I was appointed to represent. No, I'm talking about a case. It's a reported decision. It's uh, it was the first battered women case in uh, in Tennessee. A reported case where you hear about the battered women defense, where a woman is horribly beaten and kills her uh, husband or spouse in in uh, apparent self defense, but not traditional self defense and. 
Uh, it was a very unusual case. It was in Rutherford County. It was a, a woman's name was Lori Zimmerman, and I got the case. She'd already been convicted. She was in prison. She got, uh, I think, 20 or 30 years or something for killing her husband. Uh, and her lawyers did not present the battered woman defense. Well, nobody had heard of such a thing. So uh, I got the case for her, uh, appealed it based on the failure of her lawyers to not put on a battered woman defense. And I uh, was successful. The courts uh, finally recognized it and said the trial lawyers should have put on a battered woman. Psychologists showed how the women are uh, succumb to beatings and stuff and become submissive, and then they eventually rise out and kill their assailant. And we were successful in getting her a new trial. And I tried the case, and uh, she was convicted of accidental killing and placed on probation. So a significant improvement in her outcome. It was a significant improvement in her outcome, but it's a significant improvement in the law. Yes. Uh, so other people use that uh, cases. Um, I'm sure you heard of that case in West Tennessee with the minister's wife where she was killed her abusive preacher husband, that kind of thing. It built on that doctrine. Uh, and so while I'm proud of every case that I handle, I, I really consider that a, I'm very proud of that result because that helped her, but it also changed the law significantly uh, to help people, help women who've been abused and battered and that sort of thing by bringing new legal tools to the fore and creating precedent that's uh, binding in the state of Tennessee and lawyers use that to this day. So I'm very proud of that particular thing because it was an appeal uh, and we got a very different result when you use a particular defense. So those, uh, so the the foster children case and then the battered women case, um, I'm going to characterize those as sort of using your law license to effect reform in the in the culture and in the society at large. Um, do you see an opportunity today for lawyers to pursue some sort of reform in the community or in the culture at large? And if so, what what would you say that is? A law license is a wonderful opportunity to effectuate change. Any case that you get could change the law in some respect at some point. You never know that, 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 that the case has it. I mean, there are so many public interest cases that are going on right now uh, where lawyers are trying to effectuate change uh, in our society, in our culture. Uh, the lawyers are, are, are the the front runners that the, they run these things, they bring the cases where the, we're so-called the warriors uh, in, in these combats, combated in, in the courts. Uh, we try to do things in a civilized way where the judicial system and the lawyers are the people who bring these things to the fore. So sure, um, you think about, um, you know, the 1954 decision in Brown versus Board of Education. Um what you know that that did away with separate but equal doctrine that was a judicial decision that wasn't the legislature or the courts or or the uh, uh legislation coming along or the president that was a court reaching out and making it a, a tremendous decision that changed our society and undid a hundred years of evil laws uh, that kept our society segregated so yeah, I mean, you think about fabulous cases like that, 
uh, that make these changes. But at, at the end of the day, while the judges make those things, it's the lawyers who bring them. It's the lawyers who fashion the decision, the uh, opinions, and find a good case to make those uh, those changes. Sure. So, um, what's next for David Rabin? You've been at this a while. Is there are there more books? Are there um, are, are you are you going to practice until the very end? What what do you think you you do next? <laughs> well, I, I think part of it is is to, uh, when you say the end. I think part of it is to have the wisdom to know when you want to change change aspects of your career. Uh, you know, you go from I mean, a trial being a trial attorney uh, is very demanding physically, emotionally. Uh, you know, some people say you leave a little bit of yourself in every trial that you have, and it isn't too much left after 40 years. Uh, I haven't really uh, projected out any specific quote-unquote end. I certainly may uh, do more writing, do more appellate cases and stuff, but I have been blessed again by the fact that my son uh, graduates from Vanderbilt Law School. He goes off to clerk for some federal judges, and then he wants to practice law with me. And I've been practicing law with my son, Ben Rabin, uh, for years. Uh, it has just been the joy of my professional life stand in front of the Supreme Court and get him to recognize and sworn as an attorney. And so this is another part of my career that just, uh, it's the best part of my career that practice law with my son. I have, uh, I have two sons. Partners. It's just wonderful. Yeah. I have two sons. Neither of them has indicated any interest in going to law school, but if they did, I would hope that they would come and join me and follow me around for a while. Sure. It's, it's, it's great. I learned from him. Uh, my daughter, my daughter is not an attorney. She's a very, very, very gifted artist. Uh, I talk to her about many things and she gives me perspective on, you know, how to look at things differently because of, uh, her visual acuity and then everything else. And my children are, are my great joy, but being with my son is great. And I see him, uh, working on cases, uh, and I assist him. And, uh, so I, I'm just enjoying that. I haven't really thought too much about an end other than the fact that it's a constant new beginning every day. That's the great thing about practicing law. You read about something in the newspaper in the morning and that person's sitting in your office that afternoon. Yeah. So, so you never know what's going to happen. So what would you tell a young or younger lawyer that is the best thing they can do to take them from maybe competent and effective to better? And really good. What are there things that they should read? Are there habits they should adopt? Um, how can somebody that's that's following in your footsteps elevate their practice and and their skill? Well, you know, everybody. I don't want anybody to follow in my footsteps. I think everybody should seek their own path, and that that is very true. It's just like John Hollins learned things from Jack Norman, and I learned things from Mister Hollins. But you know, you wanna you want be your own person, follow, and do the very best that you can and learn from others. I would say that the best thing that a younger lawyer should do is associate themselves with more experienced attorneys. Some folks are just sitting there saying, oh, I can do everything on the Internet. I can do everything uh, electronically and be virtually here and virtually there, and I can be a wonderful lawyer. Well, maybe so. That might work for them. But you have to go out and be with other lawyers. Watch trials. If you just sit in a courtroom and watch trials, 
uh, accept appointed cases um, and, and work on appointed cases if you're on the defense side. Uh, being a prosecutor, just a fabulous opportunity for me. I learned so much. Uh, my son was a clerk for a federal judge. But it's being in the system and working in the system and, 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 and getting involved in the system uh, with other people and knowing other people. Uh, going to the clerk's office, introducing yourself to people that are in the clerk's office. Uh, relationships are, 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 are everything. So I think that that is an important part of being an attorney and making yourself a better attorney uh, to get out there. And then, you know, the other thing is write stuff. Write stuff. I mean, you think about uh, the, the, the people who have excelled in, in the practice of law or who made a name for themselves. They've all written things. You could write an article for the Bar Journal, write an article for this or that. Suddenly you become an expert uh, if you've written an article. So I think uh, it puts your name on the map. Certainly my book helped me uh, gain it. People knew who I was because of my book. Uh, so write things, write words, write books, write articles. And you'll educate yourself and make a name for yourself and do those things. And then do some things for the community at large. Involve yourself in the community and church activities or whatever. Talk to schools. I talk to Boy Scouts, schools, and stuff on a voluntary basis. That's how I get to know a lot of people. And by coincidence, you'll get a lot more clients that way. So that that's the answer. Um, now this may be this at this point this may be sort of an impossible question, but um, had you not been a defense lawyer and a prosecutor and and a lawyer for uh, at this point forty years or more, um, what do you think you might have been, or what do you think you might have enjoyed being? Oh, I think uh, I love to teach. I, I enjoy teaching. Uh, I teach, uh, you know, many CLE classes and stuff. I just really, really, really enjoy teaching, being an educator, um, you know, maybe the college level or something like that. I think if I hadn't gone into law, probably history. Um, I love history, uh, history education, uh, being, a, being a, a professor perhaps at some point, university. Um, or the other thing that I might have been, might have done to have a military career. I was in a military academy in prep school and I really enjoyed that experience as well. So I guess if I have a different life, I could, you know, maybe history professor or something or, or in a military career, hmm. I found those to be very enjoyable things and I still, I like to read about military history, and I love to teach. So, But if I wasn't an attorney, I think that's what I would do. Well, Mr. Raven, I appreciate your time. I don't want to take any more of it. I know you have lots of things to do. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for doing this, and I'll get this out. And I've enjoyed it. Great question. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That conversation takes me back to the early 90s when I was a baby lawyer and I would sit around and listen to some of the people that Mr. Rabin referenced and I would just listen and I would I would try to figure out what I could learn from them and the, the things that they had done and the stories that they told. Um, that whole conversation with Mr. Rabin was just a, like a time machine for me. Some of the people he mentioned in that interview are 
huge names in the history of the Nashville bar. And he just, you know, references them like, uh, you know, no big deal. No big deal. I just did this with so-and-so and did that for so-and-so and tried cases with this person and that. Uh, really amazing. I, I hope that um, I hope there was something in that for you. Um, my takeaway from that is that uh, we are never too old to learn something, and we should always listen to the wisdom of our elders. This is Dana McClendon. This has been Ready for Trial. Uh, if you like what I'm doing, click subscribe, follow me on all the social media, and uh, there'll be more episodes to come. Thank you.